If you guys want to get your Bibles out, you can open up to Genesis chapter 1. Okay, so uh, real quick, um, we should be done with chapter 8 in uh, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. How many of you are there? Just show hands to show who's on track. Wow, good job, you guys. I'm impressed. Um, man, I just got to say that um, in... A lot of what I do in a lot of the um, counseling, core leadership, you know, things like that, um, confrontation, conflict, um, preaching even and stuff, like, gosh, this is such a helpful book, helpful tool, because it's um, gospel-centered, you know, counseling material, really, that goes straight to the heart you know, it, it goes to the heart and it, um, it's, uh, I've just been super impacted. I've just got highlights all throughout, you know? Um, and so it's a, it's a real, I think a very useful, very helpful book for a lot of the things that you guys are involved in with your various ministries and things. So I hope that you're reading it and, um, gleaning from it. And, uh, if we didn't have many articles today or much conversation. I was planning on reading a chapter with you guys to get some catching up and stuff, but um, we're not going to do that today. So um, so we should be through chapter eight on this. You guys are done, I believe, with the Charles Spurgeon book on leadership. Um, small book, easy read, super good as well. So if you're not done with that, hightail it to get, uh, get through there. And then... Uh, I think it was as of today, we should have been through Galatians in our reading um, and uh, wrapped up 2 Corinthians, gone through Galatians, and I think Ephesians would be next for this week. So, you know, if, if you did about a chapter a day of Bible reading, which I'm sure we are all probably anyways, you know, just kind of did a chapter in this, through this um outline that we've got in our syllabus, uh, it wouldn't be hard to just keep on track with our Bible reading, because we probably, hopefully you guys, I mean, I'm just assuming reading more than a chapter a day in various uh, ways and things. What's that? Oh, goes okay, so we're kicking back to a gospel, um, which is great, because I wanted to start reading Mark anyways, so. Anybody know the theme of Mark? Very, it's very action and because uh, the theme is Jesus is a servant. That's the theme there. And the seal that went around with Mark was a bowl. A bowl was put on Mark um, in the early church. It's a picture of that servant, uh, servant Lord. So um, t- tonight we're going to look at um, the creation of man in God's image. We're not per se looking at creation so much, um, but we're looking at just God's heart behind um, how he created us, why he created us. Uh, Kind of a subtitle there in your notes is, why did God create us? How did God make us like himself? How can we please him in everyday living? And what effect does this have on ministry and relationships? And I think that's big too. What effect... Does God creating man in his image or the doctrine of the Imago Dei have on ministry and relationship? 
real quick buzzing through some of this, the pinnacle of God's creative activity is his creation of human beings. Uh, he created us more like him than anything else that he made. Uh, in Genesis chapter 1, we have the account of creation, and woven in is God exercising his sovereignty. In Genesis 1, he says, let there be light, and he saw that the light was good, and he took pleasure from it. It is good. In verses 9 through 10 of Genesis 1, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, let the dry land appear, and it was so God, God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And then for the sake of time, just kind of do an overview here. Uh, the grass and the herb and the seed and the fruit, uh, he created all of that and said it was good. There's a pattern here. It's poetic, actually. In verse 6, um, he made two great lights, the sun and the moon, essentially. And he saw that it was good. Uh, and then you have the waters abounding with living creature and moving, uh, moving around with living creatures, and he saw that that was good. And in verse 24, uh, living creatures uh, on the earth, cattle and creeping things and beasts, each according to its kind, and God saw that that was good. So very poetic. God speaks, it comes into existence, and as a result, he is satisfied. Verse 31, then God saw everything that he made, and indeed it was very good, so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Uh, so we have the pinnacle of creation, the divine fanfare. Before he created it, he showed his consideration in making man uh, here. This pinnacle of creation in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And in this, he says, uh, I'm going to jump, jump down just a little bit. God said, let us make man in our image. So we have a a Trinitarian verse there, God, that there's plurality within the one God. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and uh, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps in the sea. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Uh, and so just... Um, What's amazing is if, as we would have read all those verses before, instead of kind of skimming through them, we see in this consideration passage that just the Lord is thoughtful of, of how he's going to make man. And I love this phrase that God almost jeopardizes his glory in declaring that he will share his image with a created being. We have the broad view of God's creation, of, of him creating the male and female, creating them in his image. And then they were to go and carry out the creation mandate. They were to rule. As Tim Savage says, um, and, and we're going to see how this doctrine of the Imago Dei or the image of God actually, it goes into a lot of our ministries, but we'll see it tonight a bit in the creation account in marriage. In Tim, Sam, Tim Savage's book, No Ordinary Marriage, he says, to the eyes of the maker, whose mark of glory has been left on every cell in a billion galaxies, creation was exceptionally good. Good because it trumpets in its every dimension the radiance of his glory. Creation, it seems, could, be, uh, could not be better. And yet, there was a deficiency in creation. Anyone reading the first two chapters of Genesis is stunned by the negative assessment 
uh, after so many effusive affirmations, it's good, it's good, it's good, how could there possibly be a deficiency? The answer is that there remains one more step of creation, a step that will form the capstone of the creator's handiwork and provide an ever greater outburst of divine glory. And that's when he says, it's not good that man should be alone. So it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's, it's very good, but it's not good that man should be alone. And then he goes to create woman, man and woman, in his own image. Uh, using man to refer to the human race has caused some problems within the liberal church. Uh, as people would say, it's sexist. All right, it's sexist. Choose something that's general or gender neutral. Let's call it human race or humankind or humanity. In Genesis 1.27, this is a key verse. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now the word man in Hebrew is um, Adam. Believe it or not, Adam. Booyah. What a man, what a man, what a mighty good man. Um, we have the name of Adam, and it shows distinction from the woman, okay? We're not going to talk a ton about gender uh, tonight, but it's very important in the Bible that there is equality, there is value, and yet there's distinction in role and in function. We see that in the creation chapters and the beginning of the Bible. But the practice of using man to refer to both the gender of male and the whole human race started with God, and this is Grudem stating this, should not be found as insensitive or objectionable. Uh, Genesis 5.2, he created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. So the Lord's the one that started out by calling it mankind. Now I have a very deep thought for you and I hope you're ready for it. It's a deep thought from Jack Handy. Maybe in order to understand mankind, we have to look at the word itself, mankind. Basically, it's made up of two separate words, mank and eind. What do these words mean? It is a mystery, and that's why so is mankind. Okay. <laughs> Nobody? Seriously? Okay. It's a Saturday Night Live quote. I'm sorry. Some historical thoughts on mankind. Up to Augustine, most people saw their humanity being rooted in their relationships or their family, their city, state, nation, religion, tribe, or ethnicity. Confessions by St. Augustine. Augustine identified himself not by his circle of relationships, but by his personal autonomous identity. This led to the birth of being an autonomous individual. And then you just kind of get deeper and deeper into worldly philosophy. Uh, Rene Descartes, uh, not sure I'm saying it, Descartes, uh, Descartes, okay, had the cogito ergo sum, which essentially was, I think, therefore I am, where he asked, what does it mean to be an individual? Um, and uh, Jonathan Edwards, though, who was a Puritan thinker, wrote, we are individuals with reasonable minds who can be saved, transformed, and improved by God's grace. Essentially saying you can be changed by God to be a better person. But the world completely um, perverted all of this with Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the 1700s 
Uh, he was a Genevan philosopher, writer, and composer in the 18th century. His political philosophy influenced the French Revolution, as well as the overall development of the modern political, sociological, and educational thought. And he taught, this is Jean-Jacques Rousseau, you are an individual, but you don't need God's help to improve. You need to look inward towards yourself because you're not a sinner. You're a good person. Uh, so don't seek God's love or God's acceptance. Just love and accept yourself. Give yourself a hug, essentially. And don't think so negatively or self-assessing towards yourself. And so one problem that we have there is that they... Uh, would believe that man was created essentially good if they were created at all, that we're all good inside ourselves. So look into your heart when it's calling to you, okay? <laughs> look into your heart, all right? We're all good people here. Uh, William James from the 1800s was an American philosopher and psychologist who was also trained as a physician. Uh, he's the first educator to offer a psychology course in the United States, one of the leading thinkers of the late 19th century and believed as many to be the most influential philosophers in the United States uh, that the, the U.S. has ever produced. Uh, many have labeled him the father of American psychology. And James essentially taught, not only are you a good person and the answers are in you rather than in God, but that you actually don't need God you need a highly trained therapist to walk and speak and assess you rather than God. Essentially, we are machines that through clinical psychology, we can be fixed through fixing our parts psycholo psychologically. Um, and what happens there is God, the great counselor, is omitted. Uh, it's counseling without Jesus, without God, and without an acknowledgement of human sin. Abraham Maslow from 1908 through 1970, an American psychologist who's best known for creating Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, a theory of psychological health predicted on, predicated on fulfilling innate human needs uh, in priority, basically, basically culminating in self-actualization. Uh, he had this uh, teaching called the hierarchy of needs, which taught that your greatest need is to glorify yourself to be successful, affluential, influential as you possibly can be, to achieve and make money, be all you can be. And he stressed the importance of focusing on the positive qualities in people as opposed to treating them as a bag of symptoms. And just finally here, Christian Smith, a sociologist, uh, was very moralistic and therapeutic and a deist, uh, saying God is far away, and he's a modern day guy, uh, God is far away, not there to help you. Occasionally you can slingshot him uh, a prayer and he will maybe answer. For the most part, you're on your own. You need to fix yourself. For the most part, God is a figment of your imagination. Uh, Christian Smith is well known for his contribution to the uh, sociology of religion, particularly in his research of adolescent spirituality, as well as his contributions to sociological theory and his advocacy of critical realism. Um, and so what we look at tonight and what we'll see, I believe next week, we're going to look at the fall. Um, we're going to see how God has designed, how he is near to us, and that uh, inside us, we're not good people, but we're depraved through the fall, and we've sinned, and we're in need of a redeemer. Um,
But before we get to that, kind of all this part one is, you know, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to have been created by God in his image? Um, in comparison to culture, the Bible teaches something a lot different with the biblical worldview. Ludwig Feerbach was an atheist uh, from 1804 to 1872, was a German philosopher and anthropologist, best known for his book, The Essence of Christianity, which provided a critique of Christianity, which strongly influenced generations of later thinkers, including Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Feerbach advocated for liberalism, atheism, and materialism, and taught that we made God, uh, that he's a fragment of our imagination. Marx applied it to communism, and Freud applied it to therapy. Frederick Nietzsche, I would say Nietzsche uh, applied it to phys um, philosophically. Aristotle said, Men create gods after their own image, not only with regard to their form, but with regard to their mode of life. And uh, you see, that's what happens when we de-God God, is we make our own gods up that are going to suit us. And uh, chapter one was really good in the Paul Tripp book regarding that, how we de-God God and make ourselves God, essentially, as we create gods that are going to serve our needs, what we think our needs are. Uh, if you're in... Um, Genesis 1, we see um, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1.1. And in Genesis 1.26, God said, God spoke and said, let us make Adam in our image according to our likeness. And you might underline those phrases if you have your Bible open, image and likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing uh, that... Uh, creeps on the earth. And so notice as we studied reading through the Genesis account, browsing over it, we aren't made after a kind like animals, but we're made after the Lord, after his own image. Uh, this has profound implications in our ministering and in our relationships as we'll see as we go on. So God created in Genesis 1:27, man in his own image, in the image of God, he created a male and female, he created them. Um, so male and female, emotionally, there's not masculine and feminine emotions, just expressed emotions according to gender uh, in a manly way or a feminine way, as Driscoll puts in his book, uh, Image of God. Uh, God is not engendered, but he reveals himself to us in masculine form. Uh, Genesis 1, 28 through 31, then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, see, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also every beast of the earth, every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he'd made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and morning were the sixth day. Uh, and then Genesis 2, in verse 7, the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. A neat note here is, how did God make the heavens? He spoke, right? Uh, how did God make man a more personal action? He formed man. Uh, God breathed his spirit life into us. 
Um, in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, we have the tree placed in the garden and the command not to eat of it. If you eat of it, you'll die. And we see there in creation that man is a moral individual. In Genesis 2, 18 through 20, uh, we have man having God above him and creation put below him, but no one that was equal to him until the woman was created. Uh, we have the woman who was to be a helpmeet to him, which is a positive thing. Uh, you might know, those of you that are wives, that man needs help. Man needs a lot of help. Uh, the same language is used for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, that he's going to be the helper. Jesus says, I will send the helper. And so, you know, when we study gender, which I said we're not going to do tonight, you just need to know that it's not a denigration, but a a declaration of necessity. Um, the Holy Spirit wasn't denigrated when he was called the helper by Jesus. And uh, the wife and the woman, she is helpful. The reason why solitary existence, and this is a great uh, point, I believe, out of uh, Tim Savage's book uh, regarding the Imago Dei and creation and marriage. Uh, the reason why the solitary existence of the man is not good is not because it forces the man to endure isolation and loneliness, nor because he must face the challenges of life without human assistance. Sentimental readings like these find little basis in the text. But because he has been endowed with the divine image, and hence with the capacity to empty himself sacrificially into another. Okay? And I think there might be two blanks there. So I'll read that underlined part again. But because he has been endowed with the divine image and hence with the capacity to empty himself sacrificially into another, such an endowment cannot be enjoyed unless there is at least one other person. For there to be an exchange of self-giving love, there must be duality within humanity. As a lone human, Adam cannot manifest the divine image. And I think that is just so powerful. Then we look at, you know, the reason we're not to just be, we've been saved into community, you know, because the Trinity is a community. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We'll see later on in John 17. There was great fellowship and great glory uh, among the three persons of the Trinity. And even in and of God is that laying down his life, sacrificial love that we've been created in his image to also lay down our life um, in serving one another. The reason Eve is called a helper is because without her, the image of God would lie dormant. Similarly, the man helps the woman. She also bears the image of God and becomes all God intended her to be only when there is another into whom she can pour her own self-giving love. This important truth is as relevant to the single person as it is to married couples, as we shall see later in chapter 11 of No Ordinary Marriage. Um, this brings us to a remarkable discovery. Implicit in the narrative account of creation is a principle vital to the success of every marriage. Put succinctly, we marry for the good of our partner. This is a radical notion and quite different from the incentives normally governing marriage. Typically, we marry for what a person will give to us, hence what we will become by virtue of sharing life with that person. 
We often interpret the word helper in Genesis 2 as one who gives us assistance in any of a number of different ways, from increasing our incomes to producing our progeny. But if we are right in our understanding of the word, its meaning is nearly the opposite. A helper is one who receives our assistance and so helps us to reflect the image of God. It's amazing how the image of God, the doctrine of the image of God is important even in marriages and in our relationships to one another. When this principle is neglected, it becomes the source of every marital problem. Yes, every problem. The defects of a spouse must never be our first order of business. And I parentheses in mind, um, the defects of the other person, <laughs> all right, in any conflict that we're having, must never be our first order of business. When divisions erupt, we must ask whether we can detect any selfishness in our own hearts, and then ask God to renew within us the humble love that characterizes his image. Such a prayer will not go unanswered, okay? So we need the helper, <laughs> Uh, so that we have someone to pour in servant love to them and lay down our life for them so that we can live in that aspect. There's many different aspects we'll see later on in the study to how we've been created in the image of God. Um, Piper says this about marriage. The most ultimate thing we can say about marriage is that it exists for God's glory. And when you study the Imago Dei, the image of God, we'll get there, um, that uh, it's, we've been created to worship. We've been created to worship God. And so when, we, when our marriage is created by God and actually in the image of God, um, it's about God's glory and God's worship as well. That is, it exists to display God, Piper says. Now we see how ma marriage is patterned after Christ's covenant relationship to the church. In a, in a way, that's created in the image of God, okay? And therefore, the highest meaning and the most ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and his church on display. That is why marriage exists. If you are married, that is why you are married. We are motivated by this. We take seriously our vows till death do us part and substitute no word in its place. Uh, as we just quickly kind of go through Genesis there. Uh, <clears throat> chapter 2, nothing that Adam saw was comparable to him when he looked through all of the animals and gave them names. And in verses 21 and 22, I think it's chapter 2 there. Yeah. Uh, Adam goes to sleep and the rib is taken from his side and made into Eve. She was taken out of his side to come alongside of him. You might note in your notes, not ahead of him as feminism teaches and not behind him as, not out of his behind, as uh, chauvinism teaches. And the Puritan Matthew, Matthew Henry uh, wrote this. Is it getting warm in here now? You guys feeling the heat? Okay, good. I love this. I always yeah. use this. Yeah, I always use this in my the marriages that I do in the, in the pre-marriage counseling. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, 
and near his heart to be beloved. Now, why does this matter in the image of God's study? Because it's important to note that the woman is an equal image bearer of God, okay? In the same way that man is an image bearer of God, the woman is equally an image bearer of God. She is of equal, incredible value. Uh, and she's brought to the man. And in verse 20, 23, uh, his first words to her are the first recorded words of man ever. Uh, and it's a, it's a rhyme when you read it in Hebrew, and it's worship to the Lord. And, um, and we see that uh, in Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. <clears throat> um, just look in here real quick, see. Yeah. Let me see here. Let me check. Just 2.24. 23 was the rhyme, and Moses says this in verse 24. And then Jesus, I'm sorry, yeah, so Moses says it in verse 24, and Jesus quotes Moses in Matthew 19. So, sorry about that. Didn't have that in my notes here. Um, notice in verse 25 that they were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed. Notice that God made us clean and pure and holy in his image. What is the place of human beings in relationship to God and the rest of creation? Psalm 8 verses 5 through 8 says, you have made him a little lower than the angels and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You've put him all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. So, we are below God, but above creation. We're below God, but above creation. Every false teaching, why does this matter? Why is this important? Because we live in an area where we see this perverted and, and taught crookedly. And, and every false teaching either elevates us to be God or denigrates us to be like an animal. Right? And in the, the studying of the us being created in the image of God and the design that he placed into us. Uh, we're below God. We're not God, uh, but we're above creation. We have more value than the animals. Uh, you've heard the sayings like this, there is goodness and divine in all of us. That would be too high. Okay. All right. Uh, God's image. We have uh, morality and dominion over creation. He's a social God who writes and communicates and speaks. He is an intellectual God, a reasonable God, a spirit God, uh, a creative God. And we won't get to it tonight, I don't think, but uh, we'll see even more ways that we are uh, created in the image of God. And theologians call this all the Imago Dei, I-M-A-G-O-D-E-I, or the image of God. Why was man created? God did not need to create man, yet he created us for his glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? And then the people would answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is why we've been created. 
I like, you know, going through the children's catechism with my kids. And I always say, why did God make you? And the answer from the kids is, for his own glory. For his own glory. He does not need us. He had perfect fellowship and love within the Trinity eternally. John 17, 5, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you've given me, for you love me from before the foundation of the world. So God didn't need us for any reason. Um, but Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who's called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. In Ephesians 1, 11 and 12, In him we've obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory praise of his glory. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Why was man created? For the praise of his glory, to glorify God. Wayne Grudem says this, this fact guarantees that our lives are significant when we first realize that God did not need to create us and does not need us for anything, we could conclude that our lives have no importance at all. But scripture tells us that we were created to glorify God, indicating that we are important to God himself. This is the final definition of genuine importance or significance in our lives. If we are truly important to God for all eternity, then what greater measure of importance or significance could we want? So when someone's feeling worthless and useless and suicidal, and they want to end their life, why was this person created? To be happy all the time? Well, number one, for the glory of God. Their life is important and significant. They were created in the image of God for the purpose of bringing glory to God. That's a very, uh, that, that brings wonderful dignity. It shows the dignity and the value in human life. Uh, even the fact that we studied in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, that word love or agape um, speaks of, if you look at the end of this, I think it's in your notes there, that highest and noblest form of love which sees something infinitely precious in its objects. And so when we think of the people that God's placed in our lives, in our families, in our marriages, in our ministries, we just pray for God's agape love that he'd give us the vision that he has for these individuals. That, that even the most corrupt and brutal one, uh, was made in the image of God and is precious. What is the purpose in life? So we've got this glorifying God and then there's this other aspect of it 
In respect to God himself, we glorify him. In respect to our own images, it's a happy discovery that we are to enjoy God and take delight in him and our relationship to him. A happy discovery that we are to enjoy God and take delight in him and our relationship to him. So again, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? We covered the first part, to glorify God. And secondly, to enjoy God, to enjoy God forever. As Jesus says in John 10, 10, I've come that they might have life and that they may have it more abundantly. In Psalm 16, 11, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or Psalm 27, 4, one thing I've desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Does it seem like the psalmist is enjoying the Lord? Or the psalm of Asaph, who have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or Psalm 84, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So just this enjoying of the Lord. The normal heart of a Christian is rejoicing in the Lord. As the Lord rejoices over us, Isaiah 62, 5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Grudem says, this understanding of the doctrine of the creation of man has very practical results. When we realize that God created us to glorify him, and when we start to act in ways that fulfill that purpose then we begin to experience an intensity of joy in the Lord that we have never before known. When we add to that the realization that God himself is rejoicing in our fellowship with him, our joy becomes inexpressible and filled with heavenly glory. When on his deathbed, Matthew Henry said to a friend, you've been asked to take notice of sayings of dying men. This is mine, that life spent in the service of God and communion with him is the most pleasant life that anyone can have in this world. So what's the chief end of man? Glorifying God. And when we realize that's what we've been created to do, there is satisfaction, it's pleasant, it's, it's such a joy to bring glory to the Lord. It's not wrong for God to create man for his own glory because he's worthy of glory. Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Unlike Herod, who in Acts chapter 12, verse 23, uh, began to receive worship from people. And as he spoke, they said, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. And he had this great silver outfit on that was shining there in the amphitheater at Caesarea. And, uh, and it says there that, uh, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. Okay, good way to go. Shows what happens when we don't do what we were created to do, bringing glory to God. 
And Romans eleven thirty six for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever and ever. Let's see. Okay. Amen. <laughs> um, looking at man in the image of God, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and the cattle, uh, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Uh, so man is the only creature that was made in the image of God. The fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. Okay? The meaning of Genesis 1.26 is that God planned to make a creature similar to himself. The word image or tzalem and likeness demut refer to something that is similar but not identical to the thing it represents or is an image of. The word image can also be used of something that represents something else. Theologians have thought image to mean man's intellectual ability or man's power to make moral decisions and willing choices. That man was created as a male or a female man's dominion over the earth. When we realize that man is to be like God and represent God, these four definitions are too narrow of a description. The more we understand God and man and see similarities, the more we understand what it means to be made in God's image and likeness. Image and likeness to God refers to to every way man is like God, or every way that man is similar to God. Genesis 5.3, we read, And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness, Demut, after his image, which is Salem, and named him Seth. Okay? Now, Scripture doesn't show us every way that Seth was like Adam, if he had a similar complexion or temperament, athletic abilities, or the same sense of humor, if he had his baby blue eyes or his tendency to fall into sin fast, that would be too restrictive. All the ways Seth was like Adam are the areas that he was made in Adam's image. All the ways we are like God our Father are the ways we are like him in his image or made in his image. But then we have the fall. Then we have Genesis chapter 3, where God's image is distorted, not lost. A lot of times, it's, like, uh, it's nice to refer to the image of God as that we are like a mirror that reflects God's glory. As we are made in his image, people look to us and we shine and point them to God and, and show them his glory. And marriage is that way. A, a, a marriage is to point people to the relationship of Christ in the church but sin in the fall, what it does is it like breaks that mirror and distorts it. You know, my sister is very artistic. And one thing that she likes to do is she breaks mirrors and then she makes pictures out of them. And so we have that in our kitchen. If you've ever been there, there's a, a tree that branches go out. And it's hard to do your hair in that mirror, you know. But uh, that's similar to what the fall did is broke, broke our mirror, all right, so that the images are distorted, Okay. Um, 
But while the image is distorted, it's not completely lost. You may think as Voltaire, if God created us in his own image, we have more than reciprocated. <laughs> We've more than lost it. We've gone the wrong way. But even after the fall, sinful man is still made in God's image. A.W. Tozer, I don't know if this is in your notes. This is recent stuff. A.W. Tozer says this in his book, The Attributes of God, A Journey into the Father's Heart. He says, the author squares man's depravity with still being made in the image of God with this word picture. A vase that has held beautiful roses, though now broken, will nevertheless hold something of the fragrance it once contained. So man is still made in the image of God, even though there was fall and corruption. And we see this in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, where God tells Noah, whoever sheds men's blood or man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. All right? So there's still enough likeness to God remaining in a person that murdering them is to attack God himself. It's to defame God. John Calvin said, we are not to reflect on the wickedness of men, but to look to the image of God in them. An image which covering and obliterating their faults, an image which by its beauty and dignity should allure us to love and embrace them. We are not to look at what men in themselves deserve, but to attend to the image of God, which exists in all and to which we owe all honor and love. As James 3, 9 says, with our tongue, this is the context, we bless our God and Father and with it, with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God or been made in the image of God. When we curse men, we sin in cursing someone who was made in the image of God. However, since sin has entered our life, our reflection of God has become that broken mirror, has become distorted. Our speech isn't as pure. Our motives are selfish and not loving. The full meaning of man in the image of God is found in Adam and Eve before the fall when God said that they were very good. One man wrote, the true nature of man in the image of God is found in the person of Jesus Christ living on earth, where the true excellence of our humanity was seen then and will not be seen again until he returns and we reap the glories that he has earned for us. Okay. Now, all of this broken mirror, distorted image is redeemed in Christ. There's this progressive recovery of more of God's image as Victor Hugo, who I think wrote Les Miserables, right? Less Miserables? Victor Hugo? Okay, nobody cares anyways. You guys didn't get my Mencken Ein joke. You probably aren't read, uh, <laughs> reading Less Miserables. Victor Hugo wrote... You didn't practice your French. Oh, je suis... Okay. Hell is an, uh, Victor Hugo, hell is an outrage on humanity. When you tell me that your deity made you in his image, I reply that he must have been very ugly. But I think what Victor Hugo missed is that God created us in a beautiful image. Sin distorted that image, but the gospel is in the process of restoring it. Okay? That's why Piper preached, being made in the image of God and at the same time being a sinner, begs for Christianity. 
For it is in Christianity that the image of God is reclaimed. I say that again. Victor Hugo, I wish he was alive to hear it. It's in Christianity that the image of God is reclaimed. The gospel approximates us to our pre-fallen state. We'll go through a lot of this, uh, the rest of this quickly so I can get you home. Um, We see the sanctification process. As Colossians 3.10 says that this new nature is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. We're being renewed back to that whole, pure, clean image of God state. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of God is working in us, and, and he's taking that mirror and putting the pieces back together so that we can reflect God's glory with less and less distortion every day. The reasons that we were redeemed in Romans 8.29, he, or 829 as my notes say, <laughs> for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Part of our sanctification is towards being exactly like Christ in his moral character. And at Christ's return, he will completely restore us to God's image. As 1 Corinthians 15, 49, we'll be there in a couple weeks. As we've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. We see Jesus being the one made in the image of God. And we looked at that in our deity study. We won't study it tonight, but you just remember 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Colossians 1, 6. It's all in here in your notes there that Jesus is the image of God, all right? He's the exact likeness of God because he is God. Really quick here, some specific aspects to our likeness to God. Uh, We have moral traits, first of all, in A, Several ways here that we are more like God than the rest of creation or angels or the beasts or the fish, all right? We have moral traits. We are morally accountable to God in our actions. We have an inner sense of right and wrong, which sets us apart from the animals who just want to be rewarded and not punished, all right? We have a conscience. When we act, we either reflect God when we are obedient, holy, and righteous, or we reflect our unlikeness to God when we are disobedient and sin. We have spiritual traits. Not only do we have a physical body, but a spiritual body so we can act ways apart from this material realm that are significant and spiritual. Because we have a spirit, we pray, intercede, commune, and worship God, something that animals don't do. We will live forever. There's mental traits. We have the ability to learn and reason. This sets us apart from the animal world. Every thought they are able to learn mazes or puzzles, they've never gained by reasoning. They never try to philosophize philosophize or argue the doctrine of the Trinity. We even grow in our learning and develop more complex systems and engineer new things. But with animals, that is not the case. Our use of complex abstract language sets us apart from the animals. We have an awareness of the distinct future, that there's life after death. He's put eternity in our hearts. We have the ability to, compre- uh, to accomplish and enjoy music and art and decorating and gardening, cooking, inventing, working and fixing things. We have the complexity of emotional feelings. There's relational traits that show that we've been made in the image of God. 
how we have a depth of interpersonal harmony. It's much greater within man than animals, as we see within marriage and family, having a God-fearing home and a community. We're greater than the angels in this aspect, as they aren't married and won't be given in marriage. They don't have children or live in the company of the saints. We have relational traits, depth of interpersonal harmony, much greater within man than animals, as we see within marriage and family. Did I just read that? Oh, I'm sorry. Hey, at least I caught it, right? Could have just kept going. (laughs) Uh, In marriage, we reflect the Trinity, as we have the same importance and equality in worth, but differences in roles. Man reflects God in his relationship to the rest of creation. Man rules over creation, and when Christ returns, man will even rule over the angels. There's physical aspects. Now, it's sin to think or portray of God as anything that is a material or physical body. As Romans 1.23, the issue was they exchanged the glory of God, incorruptible God, into an image made like corruptible man or birds or four-footed animals and creeping things. And even though our physical body, we have a physical body, it in no way implies that God has a physical body. There are some ways that our bodies reflect some of God's character and constitute part of what it means to be created in the image of God. For instance, senses. We see and hear, and so does God in a much greater way, yet without the physical organs. We also smell, taste, touch, enjoy God's creation, which is something God does, but in a much greater way. Or we have movement, demonstrate God-given skills that come through our bodies. Uh, Childbearing, giving birth to and raising children who are like us is a reflection of God's ability to create human beings who are like himself. This is, I believe a lot of this is from Wayne Grudem. Uh, These are not absolute differences, but uh, differences of a very great degree between man and animals. The more complex and highly developed animals are, more like God. Animals that have some form of order or communication than the lower forms of the animals in one way or another. All of creation reflects God, but only man is so like God that he can be said to be made in the image of God. So much so that we're to reflect and imitate God. We have the ability to grow and become more like God throughout our lives through spending time in the word, prayer, using gifts, applying truths uh, across the board. Our great dignity as bearers of the image of God. It's good for us to reflect in our likeness to God regularly. It's amazing to realize that when the creator of the universe wanted to create something in his image, something more like himself than the rest of creation, he made us. This gives us the sense of dignity and significance as we reflect on the rest of magnificent creation. The stars, the producing earth, plants and animals, incredible angelic kingdom, We are more like the creator than any of these things. We are the culmination of God's infinitely wise and skillful work of creation. Even though sin has marred and distorted our likeness to God, we now reflect much of it and grow in that reflection as we grow in the likeness of God. Even sinful human beings bear the image of God, no matter how old, ill, weak, or disabled, they should be treated with dignity and respect. Uh, That is due to God's image bearer. Our conduct is affected by this. Every race, age, handicap, disease, and unborn baby deserves full protection and honor as a human. If we ever deny our unique status in creation as God's only image bearers, 
we will soon begin to depreciate the value of human life. We'll tend to see humans merely as a higher form of animal and we will begin to treat others as such. We will also lose much of our sense in the meaning of life. And I remember Paul Tripp's book on, um, uh, what did you expect, I think is what it's called, and uh, on marriage. What did you expect? And it talks about how when we lose sight of this, when we begin to uh, get, get in these fights with our spouses and just, you know, we, we begin to lose sight that they were created in the image of God and that we have a ministry in each other's lives to sanctify one another and to uh, encourage one another and to uh, confront one another and things like that, then we've, we've lost the mark. And as uh, says there at the end of that paragraph, we will also lose much of our sense in the meaning of life. And finally, Matthew 22, 20 through 21. Remember Jesus says when asked about paying taxes, he asks for a, a coin and he says, whose image or inscription is on this? And they said, Caesar's. Caesar's image is on this coin. And, they, and he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Remember, the money had Caesar's image on it, and it belonged to Caesar. Man has God's image on him, and thus should render his heart and his life and everything into the Creator's lordship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, that is just a lot to take in. Once again, drinking from a fire hose, Lord, uh, and uh, maybe complex and complicating and complicated. And Lord, we just need minds to just grow and understand just the dignity of life, Lord, of human life, uh, to think of the high worth and value of the individuals you've put around us and who we've married and our children and just the people in our lives, Lord, that, um, that were created to bring you glory. That's so important. That's so significant. Lord, everyone around us, ourselves included, Lord, we are broken mirrors that are um, so often distorting your glory. And Lord, we want you to just do your sanctifying work in us of conforming us back into the image of your son. Lord, conforming us more into your image. And uh, Lord, that we do that in each other, God, in the sanctifying life that we live uh, just through the gospel, Lord. Um, Lord, I just, I pray that you'd give us this vision in our different ministries, Lord, when we're frustrated with people, when we're sick of people, when people gross us out even. Um, Lord, if there's any bit of us that's, that's racist or chauvinistic or anything like that, Lord, um, Lord, that you just change us, Lord, to understand this high dignity, high value, high worth, high honor of human life and the people that you've placed in our midst, Lord. Lord, help us to see beyond just the, the physical, Lord, uh, the, the things and the ways that they fail us or turn us off, Lord, uh, towards loving on them. And Lord, we just pray that you'd give us your vision to who you've created individuals to be, Lord, that we'd have patience with them, that we'd see it as a ministry opportunity uh, in their lives, God. And um, Lord, we just thank you for your design, your thought, your consideration, when you designed us, Lord, when you formed us out of the dust of the earth, Lord. And we just want to live according to your design for your glory, God. In Jesus' name we pray. 
You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.